The room is cold and tense, the 1980s walls holding countless secrets and conversations. The room smells like most government buildings, aged and stuffy, like the carpet is not just on the floor, but on all four walls as well. In the middle of the room is a rectangular conference table with 12 jurors working to agree on a verdict. Most look at the case and quickly determine the defendant not guilty, all except one. A lady in her 30s who is the kind of person that would send you a note to thank you for your thank you note. You know, the real nice type. She's the one holding up the verdict. So the debating continues round and round. And this is how our justice system is built. It's built in such a way that one lady can hold up the verdict. And in this case, that one lady is me. Welcome to Plausible, a podcast where we jump into the discovery of things that have the appearance of truth or reason. Plausibility gives space not for what you already know, but for the outliers, the conjectures, the unexplained history, the crazy sounding hard to believe, but true. Grab yourself a cup of coffee and join me as we rethink what is or isn't plausible. So let's get back to the story. I'm summoned for jury duty. I get to the government building, check in, and get a number. Knowing that even though I'm required to show up doesn't mean I'll get a chance to sit in the juror seat. They show me where I can get a cheap cup of coffee and a stale donut while I wait with many others. When they call my number, I'm one amongst maybe 30 ushered into a courtroom, but then of course only 12 of us can become the chosen. We all file into the courtroom where a specific case will be tried, and then we sit in the pew-like benches. They call an initial 12 numbers to fill the jury box, and I feel like the chances of me getting selected are about the same as when I enter a giveaway on social media, like zero. But to my surprise, in my delight, I get called up. Then I think to myself as I sit in the back left corner of the jury box, there's a good chance they will trade me out for someone else. I'm a Christian, a pastor's wife, fairly conservative. But I tell all this to both the prosecution and the defense, and they decide to keep me. I'm on the jury. They close the courtroom doors. Here we go. And it's just like how it's portrayed in the movie. We all rise when the judge comes into the room and she tells us to be seated. She gives us a charge regarding the case and a brief overview of what we would be hearing that day. The case we are assigned is one regarding domestic violence in the form of aggression. We hear from the prosecution, the defense, as well as from both the victim and the accused and any witnesses. Then it is time to deliberate as a jury. I have butterflies in my stomach and a weight on my shoulders. And just before we are excused to the back room, We're reminded by the judge that we are only allowed to assess the case in relation to a specific law given to us. So we aren't trying to decide if the accused is generally guilty of domestic violence, beyond a reasonable doubt, of course, but in regards to a particular law. Beyond a reasonable doubt is defined by West's Encyclopedia of American Law as the standard that must be met by the prosecution's evidence in a criminal prosecution that no other logical explanation can be derived from the facts except that the defendant committed the crime, thereby overcoming the presumption that a person is innocent until proven guilty. We will come back to one of the many ramifications of this in just a minute. I start to realize the difficulty in front of us, evaluating the case according to a specific law regarding domestic violence. 
After hearing all the details, I basically land on the opinion that, in spite of both parties having holes in their stories, the prosecution choosing for whatever reason to not include important people from testimonial evidence, and the defense attorney being persuasive but kind of a jerk, that the accused is at least believably guilty of domestic violence. I see it as very plausible. Interestingly, I'm the only juror that has that opinion. In the initial vote, I and maybe one of the other 11 write guilty. But any others that were of this opinion with me quickly change sides. Feeling the weight of this verdict, I do not just want to lay down my conscience and pass a verdict at the mercy of the majority. This trial, and any for that matter, deserves more than 30 minutes. There's a whiteboard in the room on the wall by the door. So I decide to walk up to it and write down the law we were given regarding the case word for word. I also write down, quote, beyond a reasonable doubt, quote. As we break it down and go over the major details of the case again, one of the jurors confronts me and says, in effect, you have to remember that he is innocent until proven guilty. Though none of us sit well with either party involved and none of us disagree that the accused was an initiator to the problem, What it seems like you're wrestling with is that the accused seems to be guilty, but with a lack of adequate evidence given, there is reasonable doubt, especially in this specific law that we were given. So how can we rightfully convict him? And she's right. It sums up the way our jury system is set up. After all, it is innocent until proven guilty, not guilty until proven innocent. So I relent. We unanimously, as is required to avoid a mistrial, return a verdict of not guilty. We are ushered back into the courtroom. The foreperson stands and reads this to the court. The judge rules the case closed, and we are finished. Afterwards, the lawyers offer to chat about the case. They do this sometimes to learn what they may have said or done to influence the verdict of the jury. I, of course, stay to ask questions with a couple others and hear what they have to say. With the defense lawyer, I take the opportunity to tell him he came off a little too prideful, which lessened his likability and trustworthiness. Then, with the prosecution, two attorneys, we ask why they hadn't called certain people to testify. Their answers mostly make sense, but we share why it would have been helpful to their case, as there was some doubt about the innocence of the accused. With this brought to light, they take the opportunity to tell us that the accused, in fact, had been guilty of domestic violence previously. Obviously, my heart sinks, but apparently they couldn't bring those details into our particular trial and had several limitations for sticking to this specific case against him. So I walk away with an up-close insight into how the truth is obviously crucial, but in the court of law, it sadly doesn't seem to weigh as much as the lawyers themselves do or their research and strategy, or their ability to compel. You've got a strong prosecution, that's a strong case. If you have a compelling defense, the accused is probably going to be acquitted. In this first season of Plausible, I'm going to be discussing the infamous event that occurred on November 22, 1963, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. And I took you through my story to bring you to this idea for episode one, The Jury's Out. Just because a person is determined not guilty in the eyes of the court does not mean they did not commit the crime. It just means we cannot convict them. And the opposite is also true. 
Just because a person may seem guilty does not mean they did commit the crime. Not all of those cases are like the one that I experienced. And we have learned from history, as well as recent days, that seeming to be guilty highly depends on those involved and the prejudices they may carry. But if the lawyers can remove any reasonable doubt for the court that it could have been anyone else that committed the crime, we can convict the accused. So no one who knows me is surprised that I'm talking about JFK's assassination. But let me tell you why I chose it. Firstly, I've been researching for many years, and if I had the kind of talent to turn it into a musical, maybe I would. But instead, I'm doing a podcast. Secondly, Jack Kennedy, as his family and friends called him, was an American icon. He had a very high approval rating, he had a beautiful wife, Jackie, who was also loved by America, and he was optimistic and well-spoken in a time when America needed vision and hope. But, as my mom would say, he made a lot of enemies. Fidel Castro was his enemy because JFK was very public about his desire to take down Castro's dictatorship of Cuba. The mafia had several reasons to be against him. The way he slept around with their women, the way he tried to take advantage of their clout with those in Hollywood, but also because, and we will spend a lot of time on this in a future episode, his dad likely pulled strings with them to get JFK in office. And then Bobby Kennedy, his brother and attorney general, started going after the mob. He had a lot of people in the CIA that disliked him because of the failure of the Bay of Pigs and other missions that we'll talk about. And besides an abundance of others, his own vice president, Lyndon B. Johnson, really disliked Bobby as well as JFK. So let's get back to beyond a reasonable doubt that no other logical explanation can be derived from the facts except that the defendant committed the crime. I think one of the ramifications of this is that many cases don't even go to court because there will be reasonable doubt, and either the defense or prosecution can't risk it. If you don't have an airtight case, why risk taking it to trial instead of just settling? Or, even worse, take the supposed justice into your own hands. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time, 2 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, some 38 minutes ago. Vice President Lyndon Johnson has left the hospital in uh, Dallas, but we do not know uh, to where he has proceeded. Uh, Presumably, he will be taking the oath of office shortly and become Uh, the 36th president of the United States. Here's what I submit to you in regards to the assassination of JFK. They caught the alleged killer, Lee Harvey Oswald, within hours of the assassination. But what is the likelihood his case would have been airtight if he went to trial? In my opinion, not very. But no lawyers had to even worry about coming up with a compelling case because the situation was resolved for them. Lee Harvey Oswald is also killed on live television by a guy named Jack Ruby. Now, I don't think the idea that Oswald could have had a less-than-airtight trial, lasting maybe as long as O.J. Simpson's, is a main reason for conspiracy, but I do think the fact that he was murdered himself is one of the many indicators that something more ominous was at play. And if you have more than one alleged killer involved, it becomes a conspiracy. Conspiracy is defined as an evil, unlawful, 
treacherous or surreptitious plan formulated in secret by two or more persons. And I do believe it was a conspiratorial act, and I think there's plausible explanation for it. Can we really ever know what happened? I don't think so. But if you're like me, and it's fun for you to learn and theorize about, join me for this season. I'm going to take you to all the places I've been in my mind and all the things I've seen. So, you're the jury. Welcome to our version of a courtroom. Let's look at the facts and analyze different possibilities to answer this question. If Lee Harvey Oswald did not act alone, who else is responsible for the murder of President John F. Kennedy? I'm going to introduce you to a lot of people you may or may not already know in this podcast. And here is your first introduction. Do you remember that I mentioned LBJ's, that's what Kennedy's vice president, Lyndon B. Johnson, is widely known as? Well, his disdain for the Kennedys? Meet Madeline Duncan Brown. Madeline was a longtime mistress of LBJ. Once you get to know more about him, sadly, this won't surprise you that much. And there's a bit more to it than that. Here's Madeline sharing about it in an interview. I fell deeply in love with him. Yes, I did. I was just the other woman in his life, and uh, my emotions are still the same for him as they were when I met him as a very young girl. But I'll always love him. He was the father of my son, Stephen. And despite this, Madeline herself believes LBJ was somewhat involved in the assassination. Why? Well, here's a quick history lesson. Before Lyndon became vice president, he was a congressman and then a senator for Texas. In Texas, he had a lot of power and the ear of many wealthy, influential people. One of those friends was oil magnate Clint Murchison Sr. And one night, while Madeline was attending a party at Clint's house in North Texas, she claims she saw these men enter a room together. Clint Murchison Sr., the host of the party, J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI at the time, and a man who was illegally bugging people's homes left and right in the name of protecting the country from communism. Richard M. Nixon. You know him as former vice president to President Eisenhower and also soon to be president when LBJ finishes his term. And H. L. Hunt, a self-made oil billionaire. And guess who? Lyndon Johnson. When was this meeting, you ask? Oh, November 21st, 1963, the night before Kennedy will be assassinated in Dallas. When Lyndon came in, no one was expecting him. So when Lyndon arrived at Clint Murchison's, they all went into a conference room. And you could just feel the, the atmosphere. And when Lyndon came out, uh, I was, of course, happy to see him. I did not know that he was going to be there. And he whispered in my ear at that time, those blank-de-blank uh, Kennedys will never embarrass me again. That's no threat. That's a promise. So could Madeline's testimony hold up in court? No way. It would be her word against a bunch of wealthy men and politicians who would obviously have alibis for that evening. And when Madeline writes a book, that's exactly what happens. None of these men were there that night or even in the state of Texas. Oh, how dare she? So not strong enough to convict, but is her testimony plausible? You bet. LBJ gave up a seat with all this power in Texas, where he was known and surrounded by a bunch of wealthy people and, apparently, well-liked, 
to sit in the number two seat and be bossed around by a young buck president and his kid brother, the attorney general. They essentially sent him off on errands to other countries so they could run ours the way they wanted to and not have to fight with him to get things done. And if there is one thing we can learn from history, it is not to get in the way of a guy like LBJ and his reputation or power. After all, he said this himself, I do understand power, whatever else may be said about me. I know where to look for it and how to use it. Now, did LBJ pull the trigger? Obviously not. He's in the car behind Kennedy when Kennedy is shot. But is it plausible that he figuratively pulled the trigger by approving things with certain leadership and influencers of Texas so that it could happen? You, the jury, if Lee Harvey Oswald did not act alone, is LBJ also responsible for the murder of President John F. Kennedy? One more note for you to chew on. Do you know who John Connolly is? Governor John Connolly. He's the governor of Texas at the time of the assassination. He also gets shot because he's sitting in front of JFK in the Lincoln motorcade car. Well, looking back, this Connolly guy was an aide to LBJ while he was a senator. Then, as vice president, LBJ convinces Kennedy to make Connolly the U.S. Secretary of the Navy in 1961, which he serves as for a year, and then he becomes the new governor of Texas from 1963 to 69. He started in January the year that Kennedy will be assassinated. All this time in his career, Connolly was a Democrat, just like LBJ, just like the Kennedys. Then in 1971, Nixon, Nixon, who remember was also allegedly at this party, appoints Connolly the U.S. Secretary of the Treasury, which he serves as until 1972. Connolly then steps down to lead a group named Democrats for Nixon in an effort to get him reelected which amazingly, he, in a sweeping victory, gets reelected in spite of the ongoing investigation of Watergate. Then, get this, in 1973, 10 years after the assassination, Connolly changes his party affiliation to become a Republican. He tries to become vice president after Nixon's vice president resigns, but Nixon chooses Gerald Ford instead. And then, of course, Connolly also attempts to run for president in 1980, but withdraws from the race after the first set of primaries. So behind the decoy of hopping across party lines lies a group of men who apparently found Midas's touch. All this political bureaucracy and web of connection begs the question, was this assassination in the end just the product of a rogue defector? Or is it more likely that we can follow these trails and spin our own web to discover who is really calling the shots? Is it plausible? Thank you for joining me for this episode of Plausible. I'd love for you to subscribe so you can continue to be a part of the jury. These are my theories and ideas formed from the wealth of knowledge of many others. If you are interested in those details, check out the sources on our Instagram, plausible underscore podcast. Specific to this episode, if you want to learn more, I'd recommend the 2016 film LBJ, the book, The Man Who Killed Kennedy, The Case Against LBJ by Roger Stone, and the documentary series, The Men Who Killed Kennedy. It runs deep, people, and we're only getting started. Plausible is... Written and narrated by Christina Hoagland. 
Edited and produced by James Lobwin. Music by Rodent Law. <laughs>